Welcome, Lighthouse, on a cold day. It is indeed cold. Let's begin by prayer. Thank you for being such an amazing God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you that you want us. I really don't understand why. You're complete and self-sufficient. You have need for nothing. And yet your love, amazing love, a love that reaches, that draws us to you. We thank you for that, Lord. Help that to be our banner, Lord. And you are truth, a truth that pierces through and brings light, brings revelation to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls. You are the light of our soul, Jesus. We have nothing good apart from you. And I pray today, Lord, that your word proceeds forth. We are all just jars of clay. But your spirit makes something beautiful out of it, Lord. So we pray you have your way, that you get the very maximum glory. Because you deserve nothing less. Nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be talking today about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And there's a lot so I don't know if I'll be doing it all. Just a little bit of background again. Paul is addressing concerns at the Corinthian church. There were those in the household of Chloe who shared some news to him and then others wrote some letters to him. And so he's responding to that and he says here in verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So, as I shared, this church was having some challenges. Probably not very much different than any other church in the world. Okay? Paul addressed their concern. They asked, you know, it's good not to touch a woman, but he really gets to the point. Because they... They almost want to use like a politically correct term of not to touch when he says really what, what I mean is you're not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? He's primarily talking about immoral sexual relations outside of marriage because he follows it with let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. So part of the challenge is with the Corinthian church at that time, you know, the church was very similar to our nation now, or that city. That city was inundated with sexual suggestions and images. And um, on one side, the pagans, the people who were not believers, were um, going to the temple prostitutes. They were indulging in various sexual practices. We addressed a little bit of that before um, in chapter 5, where that even invaded the church where a man was um, partnering with his father's wife, with his stepmother. So you can see that the influence was very strong. 
Some, when they came to faith, decided, almost like a Gnostic belief, hey, we don't need to have sex at all, so we're just not going to have sex. You know, we're just going to stay away, we're going to be pure and holy, and we're just going to be thinking about higher things. And we're not going not to be thinking at all about anything of the body, because the body is bad and the spirit is good. And um, that is not the faith that God has called us to. Jesus came back in a resurrected body. We will have resurrected bodies in heaven. God's plan is not that the spirit is good and the body is evil, but rather he wants to redeem the body, make it holy and righteous. And so everything that Paul's talking about in this chapter is what that looks like. Much of the New Testament is about that, how to discipline the body, how to follow in righteousness. So Hodge says here, the idea that marriage was a less holy state than celibacy naturally led to the conclusion that married persons ought to separate and it soon came to be regarded as an evidence of eminent spirituality when such a separation was final. So it basically said, hey, it's okay, you know, just don't have any physical touch, just think about holy things, be celibate. And we saw that with many in the monastic order who would separate from people and live in either in isolation or in these little communes together and men separate from women. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's saying it's okay to be together. It's okay to be celibate. It's okay to be single and celibate. Not single and playing around. Single and celibate or married. Married and in a physical relationship. So what I mentioned here, nevertheless, he says, because of sexual morality... Paul is not saying sex is the main reason, let alone the only reason, for marriage. But he's addressing their specific question. Okay, so if you want to look a little bit more about marriage, please look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, and Colossians chapters 3 and 18, which talks about the duties of husbands and wives to one another in submission. But in chapter 7, his focus is on the physical aspect of sexual relations. So he follows that up, and this is really important in in verse 3 to 6. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as commandment. So, I love what it starts here at the very beginning. He says affection. So, when they talk about physical touch in a marriage, they're talking about it being affectionate. And the term here is actually Greek for benevolent. It's doing good. And the affection that's shown to one another is in a way that's truly loving. And just what we shared in worship songs, and if you look at the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You have no closer neighbor than your own spouse. That love is to be delivered in that same fashion. Something 
that we in the flesh don't understand. And when we get to it and talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, probably the passage that's most quoted at marriages, you get more of a sense of what love is like. And love is an action verb that talks about expressing it in the way that God has expressed to us. So, he means this with every single Christian marriage. Affection is not done based on whether or not that person deserves it, whether that person looks attractive, whether they're dressing nice, any of those things. It's nothing superficial. It's based on what God has done within our hearts, the gratefulness that the Lord has done for us, that we cannot help but be grateful and express that love to others, especially between a husband and wife. Um, so the thing about affection, the neat thing about that, that affection can be expressed even when, because of illness or some condition, they're not able to be sexual with one another. There are people who are quadriplegics. There are you know, people who are married, just like um, Joni Erickson Tata. Um, you know, she got married after her injury, and they have a relationship that's very affectionate. There's a great testimony, if you listen or have a chance to read the autobiography, um, it talks about how they show the love of Christ, even though they can't be physical in the way that most couples can be. So it's affectionate. That means caring for, loving. And that is the intent behind that kind of union together between a man and a wife. The other aspect is it's mutual. So it, you see how he put, talks about that in that verse. He talks about as a husband is to a wife and a wife to a husband. Now, it's also consensual. So they can say it for a period of time, look, we, I really want to focus on things with God. I need some time. They talk about it together. They separate briefly for a time that they can seek the Lord. That's where they use the word fasting and prayer. So when you fast, you may fast from food, but you can also fast from physical relations that way. Okay? That's okay as long as there are two aspects that he talks about. Number one, it's consensual. That means you both agree to it. And number two, it's for a brief time. Because what happens when it goes too long is that one person may not be at the same place as the other, and it sets these seeds that Satan uses to split the relationship. Satan wants to do two things in, in a sexual relationship. He wants as much sex outside of marriage and as little sex inside marriage as possible. In both ways, he's, he's victorious. Okay? He wants to divide. God's decided for that to be in holy matrimony, in marriage. Okay? Satan wants that to be outside, and we can see that already being evident in our Western culture. So in that part about rendering to your wife, okay, it says here, husband does not have authority. That means... I owe you. You have the spouse has control over me and I have control over the spouse in that sense. So it's a mutual submission, but it's also recognized this idea of my body, my rights doesn't really apply here. Because when you're in Christ, your body really belongs to the Lord first and foremost. And when you're married, your body also belongs to your spouse. Okay, so the word deprive, it talks about there not to deprive. 
The actual Greek word for that is defraud. We think deprive means, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's defraud. Defraud means the sense of taking away something that justly belongs to the other person. So you have to realize from Paul's perspective, this is something he talks about that they're due. Okay. Now, verses 7 to 9. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So, at the beginning, he says this. Two things. One, I wish that all men were like myself. And he identifies himself as being single. Give me a little bit of background um, we don't know if Paul was always single or not. There are some suggestions, strong suggestions, that he was probably married at some time. Okay? He talks about, um, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, that he was like the perfect Jew. You know, he was the Jew of Jews. And so, he was a Pharisee. He also said that he judged Christians in Acts verses 26. Uh, verse 26.10, when he cast his vote against them, which makes me us think that maybe he was part of the Sanhedrin. We don't know for sure. But if he was a true Pharisee, and especially if he was in the Sanhedrin, by the age of 20, he's expected to be married. And when I look through some research, it's pretty clear, even now in Jewish custom, it's there's so many things in the Mishnah that talk about how um, in, in the in Jewish rabbis that to not be married by the age of 20 would have been a major sin. It was a strong expectation that you would have been married. Okay? You were obliged to be fruitful and multiply. You were obliged to, to, to raise um, Jewish kids. This was a mandate. And so many of the different rabbis would say that basically you're almost cursed if you're not. So there's a strong sense that he may have been married. But nowhere in the book of Acts... Nowhere in the epistles, nowhere in the Bibles at all, does it talk about him being married. We don't hear about him being married. We don't hear about a wife. He doesn't talk about that. Was, was he married and his wife died and he's a widower? Some say yes, that he was a widower. Others say maybe she was an unbelieving spouse. She didn't believe and she left him because he talks a little further about when an unbelieving spouse leaves, you be at peace. So, the point is that if he was married, okay, he wasn't married then, he has insight into marriage and singleness. Okay, so that's the first point. The second part that it says there is he talks about it being a gift from God. What he's saying is, and this is something that we don't get, this word gift is the same Greek word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when they talk about spiritual gifts. Okay? 
when they talk about charisma, when they talk about spiritual gifts, they're talking about this is something that God has given. So being married is a gift from God. Being single, single celibate. So whenever I use the word single, I mean celibate, is also a gift from God. And it's God who gives that, who grants that through the power of the Spirit. Okay? Now, as with anything, none of the gifts operate through the flesh. So if you're operating in the flesh, that marriage is not a gift. You're operating in the flesh, that singleness is not a gift. Okay? That is a gift that God has granted. Okay? So what he's talking about is the focus is on the Lord and on the Spirit in terms of the Holy Spirit within you guiding your decisions, guiding what you do. When you're operating the Spirit, you may be single and celibate, or you may be married. Both are gifts from the Lord. So, one of the things he says is very clear, is if you're burning with passion, and he's not saying occasional lustful thoughts or occasional desire, but you're burning with passion, and you can't offend it, you probably don't have the gift for celibacy and singleness. Okay? You probably, it's very hard to get that in our society, which is so inundated with the idea of being sexual and not being celibate. But if you do burn and that's all you're focused on, then it's better to marry. Who should a Christian marry? Another believer. One of the things that we don't appreciate at this time and in this culture is the idea of the love marriages, the kind of that we have in our Western society where you make a decision based on your feelings, is something that most of them did not get married. That's not how they got married. In Jewish culture, there is arranged marriages. That's very common in the East even right now. I'm going to just give a little side. I remember when I was 17, my father took me aside in the car when we were driving down and he wanted to talk to me. And he said, Son, when the time's right, I would like, well, your mom and I would like to choose the wife for you. And I said to him, Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and he goes, well, well, why not? And I, part of it is because my mom and dad, they did have an arranged marriage. They got to meet themselves, meet one another one, just before they got married. Um, but they didn't have a good relationship. They really weren't well-suited for one another. And at the age of 14, I was mediating their disagreements, basically trying to get them back together. And that's not really the role that the eldest child should be doing. But um, So I didn't see that the arranged marriage was very good. And I told my dad, Dad, you're, the marriage you had, you know, arranged marriages aren't so hot. Look at that. He goes... Well, there's no question our parents did not choose wisely. They chose based on the fact that he had good prospects and she came from a good family, not whether that they were actually compatible with one another. But we know better and we can choose more wisely because we've learned that. We've had experience. I go, well, Dad, I don't know about that. I want to marry somebody that I love. And he said, well, if you make your decision based on a feeling... What happens when your feelings change? Okay? And so the point he's saying is, at that time, I thought love was only a feeling. Again, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says love is a commitment. Love is an action. Okay? So he was correct. Making decisions based on feelings are not the parameter that we go by. 
So when it says burn with passion, it doesn't mean that you may need to be together, but that doesn't mean you marry the first person that you have the hots for. Okay? What that means is you really need to look and get counsel. Okay? That's not something that's customary in our society. Okay? If you look back in the Old Testament, I want to say this again. It's when you look through what happened with okay, um, Isaac, okay? How, how did Isaac get married? Isaac married Rebecca when Abraham's servant basically took his animals across to um, Laban and basically said, Whoever, whichever maiden draws the water for my animals, that's the one I'm going to give the gold to. That'll indicate who they get married. So Isaac had an arranged marriage. Or sorry, um, yeah, Isaac had an arranged marriage. Okay? Then he had two kids, right? Esau and Jacob, when have Jacob, he wants to marry, who does he want to marry? He wants to marry Rachel, right? That's where his love was, that's where his heart was. Jewish custom goes, no, 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 the older daughter has to get married first, okay? That's the rule. So it ends up that Rebecca's brother, Levon, says, no, you're marrying Leah. And he, gets, he finds out on the marriage night that he married Leah first. And then he got to marry Rachel. But there was tension between that. So having a marriage based on feeling that just created discord and tension. All through the New Testament, when you look at most cultures, particularly Jewish culture, but even Greek and Roman culture, marriages were done for family reasons, political reasons. Even through history and nobility, you see that um, different kings and, um, would marry, um, you know, or have their sons marry princesses from other kingdoms so they could unite based on alliances. So... That's a cultural difference that we're not accustomed to. But the value that they're talking about that's useful is that when you get married, it's more than just the two of you. It affects everything else around you. When we decide to do something, every decision that we make, and I've shared that on Wednesday, everything we do has not only temporal choices and consequences, but also spiritual consequences. So, from, particularly from the spiritual consequence, when you get married, it has an impact on that. So, it's prudent to seek counsel. That doesn't mean you don't have a choice in the matter and we should have arranged marriages. That's what I'm saying. But it is prudent to seek counsel. To seek good counsel where people can say, are you two compatible? Are the two of you focused on the same goals? If you have a love for God, are you both going to be focused on God? Are you going to be working for the kingdom together? If somebody feels called to the mission field and the other person doesn't feel called to the mission field, that can be a problem. So you need somebody who can help counsel going, is this something that God wants for the two of you? How do you know in a relationship this is what the Lord wants? So, again, the whole idea of when you're single, Paul talks about that. It's better to be single because when you're single, you can just, God tells me I do need to do this. And you don't have to answer directly to anybody else in that same way, and you can go ahead to the mission field. When you're in a relationship, the decisions have to be mutual. So, when I say about marriage is okay, no question Paul says, hey, it's better to be like I am, because his priority and focus was on ministry. And he knew that when he didn't have to answer to anybody, he can just respond, go to whatever missionary trip where he wanted to. But he also, Paul also says, it's good to be married. It's good to be married for the body, for the church. Marriage is an, is an archetype. It's 
what God created at the very beginning. God said to man, it's good for man not to be alone. Okay? In Proverbs, it talks about a man, when he finds a wife, he finds a good thing. It also talks about, in Timothy, he says, don't forbid people from marrying, because that's the doctrine of demons. Okay? 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3. So, marriage is also good. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. Okay? One is not superior to the other. The key criteria in determining the good is not what suits me, but what gives God the maximum glory. So if that's your priority, that this is going to give God the glory, then that's what we're to do. Okay, let's move on now to verse 10 and 11. Now to the married I command, yet not, yet not I but the Lord... A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So before he was addressing both the single and the married, now he's focused on the married. He says, Um, The idea, and I touched base on this a little earlier, that you can get separate from your spouse so that you can pursue God. I'm going to go on the mission field, so I'm going to leave my family and just do that. That's not what God, God wants. That's not what the Word says. You're not to depart. You're supposed to stay united. God has permitted really only two reasons for divorce, biblically. Can you pull up Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9? Jeremy, do you have that? I don't think I have that written down here. 19, 3 to 9. That's a long passage in Matthew that talks about Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Some Pharisees came to try to trap him. Actually, let me use it in the... We're all reading from the... New King James. I've got multi-translations. Pardon me for that. Also to test him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And at that time, there are two schools of thought. One um, school was saying strict guidelines. You cannot divorce except for sexual immorality. It's very strict. The other side saying look, if she burns the toast, you can divorce her. For any reason, it's okay. So there was two schools within um, the Pharisees at that time. And Jesus answered them and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, I like what the King James used, cleaved, okay, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it really becomes like stuck together. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, man, let not man separate. So the Pharisee then said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? That's not what Moses said. In Deuteronomy, Moses permitted divorce. He did not command them to give a divorce. 
But he did want to make sure that the woman was not left hanging, and by having a divorce certificate, it allowed her a chance to get married. So, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So basically saying, that was never the plan. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and that person marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced, that means divorced unbiblically, commits adultery. That's a heavy, heavy saying. So here in Corinthians, and we'll go a little further in Corinthians 7.15, the only other reason for divorce is an unbelieving spouse leaves you. So either there's sexual immorality, and when they talk about sexual immorality, they're talking about physical relations with somebody else. They use the word porneia, we've interpreted different ways, but at that time in all things, it's whether you're having physical relations with another male or female or creature, any kind of physical relations was considered biblical grounds for divorce. Now, that's not God's plan for divorce. God never wants divorce. Even in that case, he's still, his heart is still to reconcile. Just as he reconciled us, he still wants couples to reconcile within that. So if there's any way possible, his heart is still saying, look, yes, sin has occurred, but repentance can happen, and my grace is sufficient to redeem all relationships. My grace is sufficient to redeem all relationships. And so that's the opportunity, and that's the role of the church, is to try to redeem that if any way possible. That being said, what we don't realize going into relationships, most of the time I haven't heard very many people counsel a couple saying, hey, when should you get married? That's it. Okay? can't change your mind. You don't go in and just say, okay, I don't feel like it. I'm out of here. This idea of no-fault divorce and all that's happened in the last 60 years is not what the Word is talking about. Okay? The hard challenge is this for guys, people who came to faith. So, actually, we'll get to that. I'm just jumping ahead. Pardon me. So, that doesn't mean that there can't be separation. If there's ongoing abuse in a relationship where somebody's being threatened, there's violence, um, the children are at stake, it is legitimate and okay to separate. It is appropriate to do so. Okay? And so the Bible is not trying to force people to be in abusive relationships. That's not what it's about at all. Please don't hear it that way. Okay? And so those things are special cases. They will take particular counsel on that. And I don't want to go into giving you decrees of what should happen. Certainly, separation on that account is appropriate. Whether it has to be divorce or not will depend on the particulars of whether reconciliation can occur or not. Okay? And those are things that, um, again, really against the heart of God. And the question of a man or a woman who's abusing your spouse continually, you have to wonder, are they really a believer or not? You know, do they really have the grace of God? What's going on with them? So, um, Let's move on then now to verses 12 to 16. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, 
If a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to a peace. To peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, before that it says, the Lord, not I. And now he says, but I, not the Lord. Paul's not saying this is not authority. What he's saying is, what was discussed before was mentioned by Jesus, was mentioned by God. And that's where we brought those verses up in, in Matthew. Now he's saying this is something that Jesus didn't actually touch on. It's still inspired and it comes from God, and that's why he's addressing this was for those cases that were not previously addressed by Jesus. So he says, basically saying, if you have a spouse, you suddenly come to faith and you have a spouse who doesn't believe and they're willing to stay with you, you need to stay with them. That's hard. You now have a priority that's different than you had before. You want to serve the kingdom. That person does not. And there's tension there because your priorities are going to be different. You're going to want to go to church on Sundays or other times and do mission trips. Or, so it's going to be a, a problem in that regard. God does not want you to divorce. Okay? So the other reason is, is God sees that as your primary mission field. Now that you have come to faith, in that family, you have a chance to share the gospel with your spouse and with your children. So when it talks about your children are sanctified, they're sanctified because there's a spiritual covering you provide. So the spirit is within the church. Whenever we're praying and when there's holiness, there's a spiritual covering. Within a household, as the couple are praying together, there's a spiritual covering provided for the house. There's an influence that has on the children. When there's ongoing sin or problem, that affects that adversely. When there's holiness and people, couples pursuing God, that affects it positively. But even one person in the household choosing God over the world has a holy purpose in that house, and it changes the atmosphere. So that's what he says, whether you will save your husband. It's not like the wife actually saves the husband or the husband actually saves the wife, but the positive influence that you have, the life that's holy, that's servant, that's... Truly showing 1 Corinthians 13, serving good love, serving others, blesses the other person, and becomes a testimony. First Peter talks about that. Right? Wife, you can be such a testimony that your husbands, who are not nice, can see the love of Jesus in you. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that does bring glory to God. And that's kind of how Jesus was to us. It's, so he expects us to be the same to others. So... It does say, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart in peace. That means if they say, look, I'm just, you may want that Jesus, but that's not for me. I'm out of here. And they choose to divorce you, you have to let them go. You have to be okay with that. It's not easy either. And you can make a good case, especially if there's children involved, that you may remain unmarried with a hope that your light can still shine as you have influence the kids. 
But certainly if they're not children apart and they've gone on, and especially if they've remarried, then you're free now. You're free to be at peace, and you're free to either be single, as now God's called you to be, or to marry if he's called you to be. Okay. Okay. So, how do you know? So, basically, the key is this. We don't have the answers always. And certainly in a relationship, things happen that we don't like. But instead of making definitive ideas saying, okay, that's, I'm going to close the door, this is done, we need to be open to the Holy Spirit moving. If you know the heart of God is always towards reconciliation, likewise, that should be our heart. Our heart at all times should be to try to reconcile, to try to bring together, because that brings amazing glory to God. That's a huge blessing to your children, and that shows that there is a living God who makes difference in people's lives. So that's why he finished that section with that hope of that. Um, the next part we're going to talk about is verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So this is another big principle in this chapter, which is live as you were called. When you come to faith, it doesn't mean that you... Pardon me. It doesn't mean that you have to um, turn your life upside down in terms of your circumstances. God may call you to a certain thing to do certain things, but basically, if you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Don't rush think, okay, now that I'm, I'm with Jesus, I need to find myself a Christian spouse and we need to go on the mission field. Live as you were called. Be at peace Cultivate that relationship. That's the most important thing to be called to. And it also means within the situation you're in. Now, if you're doing something that was illegal, you were a criminal and you were acting criminal behavior, don't live as a criminal. That's not what it's talking about. Okay? But if you're working in an industry and a job, you may remain in that for that season, that time, because maybe God's brought you to faith with Him so that you can minister in that environment. So he's talking about relationships, living you called, and also in your circumstances, living you called. Okay. So this is the part that we have to be careful about. And the part that we have to be careful of is within our own hearts, whether we are um, resentful. The challenge with so much of us in our society is there can be envy and jealousy. And Paul is saying, don't worry about them. Don't worry about others. Focus on our relationship and what I'm going to work through to you. And so he's saying again and again to walk in peace. So he says this. This showed up in the next verses, in verse 18 to 20. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. 
Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Now, this may be weird to you, but back in that time when Antiochus took over, this was back um, during the time of the Maccabees, about 200 B.C., um, he took over. There were many Jews who didn't want to be Jewish anymore. And this still happened even in Roman times. They didn't want to be Jewish anymore. And so these men who were circumcised thought they went these surgical procedures to make them look like they weren't. Okay, because there's public baths and they didn't want to stand out or look different. And so what happens is basically saying, wherever you are, if you were circumcised, you were a Jewish believer, or if you're a Gentile believer, you don't have to change that. You just have to be as you are. Okay, God wants our heart, not our outside appearance, not even necessarily things that we do that are, um, you know, not criminal behavior or anything like that, to continue. So he's saying, okay, Keeping the commandments of God is what matters, not about the things you do or how you look. That also refers to marriage. So marriage is nothing, unmarried is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And verse 21 to 24. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So Paul is emphasizing that, kind of hammering that message home. At that time, and he brings up slaves as a particular thing because on one of the really terrible things at that time, slaves were property. So as the owner of a slave, you could have them join with a, another slave for a while to make more children, and they'd become more slaves for you. And so that would be a kind of a marriage. And so he said, look, if that's the relationship you came to Christ in that, stay in that. If you can get free of that, do so, but just stay where you are. I, what's the principle? The principle is, don't assume just because you got saved that you need to radically change the circumstances you're in. The priority and focus is not the circumstances, it's rather the relationship with God. Loving God and keeping His commandments. And he talks about being slaves of men. Okay? Do not become slaves of men. I love what Spurgeon said here. I am of Paul. Wait, do not follow even good men slavishly. Do not say... I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Calvin, I am of Wesley. Did Calvin redeem you? Did Wesley die for you? Who is Calvin and who is Wesley? The ministers for whom ye believed as the Lord gave unto you. Do not so surrender yourself to any leadership, but rather follow that you would rather follow the man than his master. I will follow anybody if he goes Christ's way, but I will follow nobody by the grace of God if he does not go in that direction. So the key is this. This is a challenge for us. We may not think that some of those things are relevant to us, but we can become slaves to things that we idolize. Just as we idolize different celebrities, it can happen in Christian celebrities or secular celebrities. God's saying, that's not your priority. Don't follow a particular worship group. Don't follow a particular denomination. Don't follow a particular leader. Follow me. Now, if that person is following them, as Paul says, 
follow me as I follow Christ. If that person is following Jesus, you can use them as an example. But the priority is always following Christ, not the person, not the denomination, not any of those things. Okay, let's move on to verse 25 to 28. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So Paul circles around back again. For those who are married, and, you know, I was, my wife died in, in 08, but marriage is tough. It's not as easy as you think. There's tension. If you're in the spirit, it can go well. But if you're in the flesh, it can be trouble. Okay? And I don't know anybody who at some time during the day doesn't operate in the flesh. So it can be a challenge. But here Paul talks about even more that there's persecution and trial. So if there's outside stresses, and he talks about the trials they're going in Corinth, because a lot of people didn't like Christians. And you'll see shortly after that time with Rome and Nero trying to persecute the Christians, it became even harder for them. And he's saying, you may be able to stand up against torture, but I don't, I don't know how I would do if somebody threatened my wife and my kids. You know, I might stand, you can torture me, but threatening my wife and my kids, that's the only thing that would really make me really falter. That would be a challenge. That's a much greater sacrifice to say, yeah, I'm okay with my kids dying for my faith. Wow. And you got to see that with some of the things with Richard Wormbrand and some of the other ones in, um, in the communist countries when the, through um, the messages from Voice of the Martyrs. But that would take the grace of God. It's much harder to do. So you have to realize that at that time, particularly if married, was harder in battle. It's harder. You can see that in world wars when... Spouses in, in any war, when there's a one soldier going off to battle, it's hard for the spouse at home. It's really a challenge between the two of them. It's difficult. So we are in a spiritual battle, and when you're actually going to a battle, it's difficult on the rest of your family. So Paul says, look, to spare you that, if you're going into a battle, probably not a good idea to be married. But it's not bad if you do. Okay, so if you do get married, just realize... It's going to be tough. One of the things that we don't do enough about is we talk about the good things of marriage. We don't talk enough about some of the challenges and warn people about the difficulties. And Paul is trying again and again to look. It's not as easy as you think. And you have to be aware, in light of what's coming, what God's laid on you, is this the Lord doing it? We decide by our flesh and not by the Spirit. And he's trying to tell something different. Okay, in verse 29 to 31. But I, as I say this, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and even those, and those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as they did not rejoice, those who buy as they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. And this is 
once again, Paul's mentioning how important to have an eternal perspective. He says again and again, we, so many of our decisions are based on the, the here and now, what I want now. And we hear Jesus admonishing, he says, you don't know when it's going to happen when I'm going to return. And it's been 2,000 years, so in our minds, that's a long time, so I can plan the future. But again, Jesus says, you know, the guy who builds extra storehouse to store his grains, he doesn't know this very night. You don't know if tonight something may happen, you may die. I just found it this week when I went to work early I, um, on Tuesday night that one of the surgeons, who's actually um, a year younger than I did, died. He was supposed to go to work. He, um, they called in the morning. He didn't show up. They finally got a hold of his ex-wife who sent the police to his house and they found him dead in his sleep the night before. So in one moment, his life was gone. So what they're saying, time is short. He's basically saying we don't have any idea of what the future holds. And if our focus is temporal, we may be disappointed. If our focus is eternal, if our focus is eternal, that's when we'll have peace and joy. So the emphasis here and again is please keep your eyes on eternity. Look at the fact that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. There may be trial, there may be challenges. You have to have your perspective that the joys you have now may pass. The griefs you have now will also pass. But the joys you have in eternity will last. If you're focused on that, then it's okay to do everything within that spirit and that intent. Verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. For this I say for your own profit, that I may... That not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So again, as I've shared before, Paul talks about both that being married can be good, being single can be good. Here he emphasizes even more so that once you decide to get married, your focus is a little divided. You're trying to please your spouse, you're trying to go, you're trying to please the Lord. He's emphasizing again, this is a challenge. It's harder to get. If you're single, your focus can be on the Lord. You, you can serve the Lord without distraction. Significantly, Paul, for Paul, the most important thing in life was not romantic love, but pleasing God. For him, he could please God better as single, but another may please God better as married, all according to our calling. Now, the last part he talks about, and this is where I alluded to at the beginning about the kind of marriages they had, because most of the time, they were arranged. So in verse 36, if any man thinks he is behaving improperly, improperly towards his virgin... If he is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. 
Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. And then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. So, what he's basically saying, this is like a father who has a virgin. Now, it's mostly alerting to a female, but it can be both female or male. Basically, while that, I say child, but it could be young, a young adult, is in your household, they're under your responsibility. And so you get to make some of the decisions of what to do in the household, and you get to say, okay, it's appropriate. And you, that, um, your child may want to get married, and it's okay to let them get married. They may want to serve the Lord. It's okay for them to serve the Lord. That may be more of a financial burden on yourself in that regard because you may be partly responsible to help take care of them, as you tend to do. When the daughter is in the household, they're the responsible of the father, responsibility of the father. Typically, they didn't earn or work as much, and so when they got married, the husband then became the primary individual responsible for her care. So he's saying it's okay, you can decide. Repeatedly, over and over, the message is, is it for the kingdom? If it's for the kingdom, it's the best decision. Maybe best for them to get married for the kingdom. It may be best for them to be single for the kingdom. Keep your focus eternal. Okay? Keep your focus eternal. Every over and over and over again. Keep your focus eternal. And the last part is verse 39 to 40. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So he closes the chapter basically saying, you know, if a woman, if the husband dies, you're free. And it talks about that. We've talked about it before. Once the spouse dies, you're free to remarry. But that doesn't mean you should. If your focus is eternal, then maybe you've had the season of marriage and maybe this is the time for you to be serving God. If your focus is eternal, you may need, you may appropriately get married, but it's where your priority is that Paul's trying to address. So as I said earlier about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, there is no greater commandment. Everything else, all the laws and everything else rests on that. That applies here just as much. Everything Paul's talking about again and again is when you love God and your focus is eternal, you want to obey His commandments, and that will be your motivator in any relationship you have, both with the spouse, if you have one, and with those around you. As long as you have that continual motivation, you're likely not to stray far. If your motivation is on the self and the focus on the self, that's when there's challenges and problems. So he addresses specific questions here because that's what they raised up. And that's why it's kind of a, many ways, technical. I know it seemed kind of wordy and long. And he's like, okay, how is this applicable to me? The principle is, where is your priority? Is your priority eternal? Is your priority temporal? That's what needs to motivate you more than anything. We have to think that way. So, um, 
He'll talk more in, in Corinthians. I'll touch base on what drives us and what love looks like and what it means to be gifted by it. But I think the Lord is talking to us, what is it that as a church, as a body, that we want to be? Where is our priority? Okay, Are we going to be focused more on what God wants or more on what we want? And that will always be the battle and the challenge each and every day. And as John the Baptist told said, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. The only way we can have more Jesus in our life is if we decrease. It's the only way. Okay? There's no, there's no way we can say, I can have Jesus in all of me. Um, it's all of you the way you are is of the flesh. Is Jesus needs to redeem that. So it really has to be a dying yourself. Then it's kind of a new life, a heart from stone to flesh that God provides that's even better you than you, but that's another conversation. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for being an amazingly good God. You know what we need. Father, may our priorities always be your focused on you, on what you want, what your word says. Help us to cleave to you. When, when you've redeemed us, you know, it talks about being connected. When we, you, you need to purify us as a bride, we cleave to you. Help us to cleave to you, to stay with you. And I don't know the hearts of each person here, Father. There may be people who don't know you. And Father, so I pray that this will be the day of their salvation. And Lord, if there's a need that they need to come up to talk to Pastor Jeff or myself and um, they're, they're ready to repent and surrender their life to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, make it so. Angels will dance. You're worthy of that glory. You're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.